Welcome to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast, where building a thriving real estate investing business has less to do with subway tile and shiplap and everything to do with whether you've laid a solid foundation to support the life of your dreams. I'm your real estate lawyer turned legal educator host, Bonnie Galam. In my years building a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio, the most important lesson I've learned is that being a successful real estate investor isn't about secret strategies or ninja tactics. It's about doing the basic stuff right and staying laser focused. If you're an ambitious real estate investor or one in the making who's looking to build a real estate portfolio that's secure, streamlined, and creates a life you love, you're in the right place. Each week here on the show, you'll get clear, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you build your real estate business and some tough love along the way to make sure you're not building a house of cards. Let's get started. Hey there, and welcome to this week's episode of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Gallum, and I'm really excited for this week's episode because it's something that's been on my mind a lot recently, and it's kind of, it's about the ethics of being a landlord. Yeah, um, I realized that unlike lawyers or realtors, for those of you out there who are realtors, we don't have a code of ethics that we have to follow in order to do the business that we want to be in. There, there is no oversight committee on who is a good landlord and who is a slumlord. And I have been deep, probably too deep, in some Facebook communities recently where, my God, the advice that people are giving to often newer, inexperienced landlords um, is what I consider just flat out offensive. And I kind of wanted to create this week's episode as a pushback to this culture of landlording that seems to be festering online, which is, I think, creating a new generation of slumlords. And I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone sets out in real estate investing to become a slumlord. In fact, I I know because I have many clients and many friends who are very vehemently and trying to, you know, consciously invest in communities and remove what is this perceived adversarial relationship between a landlord and a tenant that I just, I don't know where it came from. And I think... (laughs) Again, that this all goes back to, you know, are we business owners or are we investors? And when you look at, well, I'll just talk about buy and hold real estate investing in this case. If you're a landlord and you look at your properties as an investment, then anything that goes wrong in that property is a liability. Every headache is a problem to be squashed because it's, all it is reducing is that immediate bottom line. It's There's this adversarial tension between the landlord and the tenant that I don't think has to be there. Because if you look at being a landlord from a business standpoint, which I think is more beneficial in every respect of the term, is you see that it's if you take approach of customer service and coming at it from a place of me and my customer, me and the tenant are in this together. And so how can we work through the, you know, any problems that arise, any um, disputes, any, just really anything good or bad together, because we have a lease with each other and we are together. Um, And so I I thought it would be worthwhile to kind of have this discussion. And I have five points kind of drafted out here. The five things not to do if you don't want to be a slumlord. And so I'm going to just, you know, run through these. Um, 
because it, it it's something that's really been on my mind and really been bothering me that a lot of people, their, their first instinct is to blame tenants, get mad at tenants, get push back any request. No, 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 no. That's not your job. It's not your responsibility. It's not this. And first off, so help me, if you are getting your legal advice from Facebook, just no. <laughs> well, we'll just stop there because I, I don't think a lot of landlords realize that a lot of the questions you're asking have very serious legal implications and the least of which being uh, uh, habitability of, of the properties which are renting. But the reality the reality is, is that you need, as the business owner, to identify which are th- things that are out of your league and have specialists who operate in them. Things like insurance, taxes, legal, financial planning. These are all areas that have an expertise to begin with and typically for actual good advice that applies to you and your situation, you're not going to find it in a Facebook group, in a bigger pockets group, in a Reddit thread. It's not going to happen. And I can tell you that if you are following the advice that people give you there, caveat emptor, buyer beware. And sometimes you get what you pay for. And unfortunately, I, I get these cases on my desk. I don't mean to be overly dramatic and you know say this because, oh, Bonnie, you're, you're the lawyer. Of course you're going to say that. Um, the reality is, is that People screw this stuff up and they get in serious hot water for it. Not to mention the fact that you're part of potentially, you know, creating this culture where people think landlords are bad people. And if the last year has taught us anything, it's that landlords are not the most popular people. We're probably up there with like Congress and, you know, the DMV and, you know, getting an oil change and like the things that people most, you know, think favorably about. And so what can we do as an industry to shed ourselves of some slumlording behavior? Um, the, fir- the first thing I think we can do is get to know your licenses and registrations. Most states, and on top of that, most municipalities, have some sort of landlord registration. Find it, fill it out, and send it to whoever needs to send it. A lot of times you need to send this to your tenants so that way the tenants know where to contact you. Now, where does this possibly have a problem? Mm, Think, think, what is Bonnie's number one thing that she loves to rant and rave about? Land trusts. So unless you've got your, your property under a property manager and they can be the person who's registered, guess whose info's going on that land trust? Your LLC, your, um, trust information, because a lot of these registrations, and I'll just speak on Pennsylvania and New Jersey, which I know most intimately, they need a body in the county where the property is located. And so maybe you've got a great realtor friend, maybe you've got a property manager, but just keep that in mind. When you start thinking about your asset protection strategies, um, about what exactly does the government need to know for you to do what you need to do and how does that affect everything else in your asset protection strategy? Now, the, the important thing with these licenses and registrations is 
One, you want to make sure you've got insurance on the property. You would be surprised how many landlords are out there that don't realize they've got some sort of illegal unit that they bought. Oh, it's advertised as, you know, a triplex or this or that. And it's, you know, maybe zoned as a duplex and that, you know, basement unit or third floor attic unit was kind of thrown in there and that no one knew about. And so that's really important to know. One, because you probably can't evict anyone from that unit. Two, you probably can't insure that unit. And three, that could cause a problem possibly with your tenant's ability to insure that unit and their possessions as well. And so know your licenses, know your registrations, fill them out and send them to whoever needs them. Now, you may be thinking, well, Bonnie, if this is just going to cause a problem with my asset protection, should I even be doing it? One, yes. Two, most states you have to have these registrations filed for um, the ability to evict. And so you don't want to not have them around and at the waiting if you need to kind of pull that trigger. And so do that, let your tenants know how they're supposed to communicate with you, where they're supposed to communicate with you, and if things go wrong, who they're supposed to contact, when and how. Uh, And that's in addition to your lease, which may have some of that information and should have that information in there as well. Alongside that with the leasing uh, thread is get to know your security deposit laws. I realize that there is no security deposit police, much as there is no FHA police, which is something I like to tell my clients. There is no security deposit police. But do you really want to be calculating interest on, um, you know, security deposits that have been held for a decade because your tenant knows that they're supposed to be paid interest on it and they're kind of frustrated when that money (laughs) isn't there? Uh, Are you putting it into a separate interest-bearing account if that's what your state requires? Are you notifying your tenants of its location in a specific bank, uh, in a specific interest-bearing savings account on their behalf as well? All of those things, just because something is not in your lease does not mean that it's not law. And that's where it's really, really important that when you're making your contracts and your leases and agreements of sale, whatever you use in your investing business, you're working with an experienced real estate attorney in your state. You're not just getting the cheapest form anywhere because just because something is or is not in your lease does not make it legal or illegal. I hope that that makes sense. Um, If you haven't listened to some of the earlier episodes, and maybe I'll do a deeper dive on this, on the intersection of landlord tenant law and contract law, I'm sure that's exactly what everyone wants to to be hearing about. You know, that has to be, you know, what everyone talks about at cocktail parties. It can't just be me. Um, but landlord tenant law kind of trumps contract. Like you can't contract away certain things that are legally provided for in your state. Something that I have, you know, Probably once a week, uh, a landlord calls my office and says, hey, um, I know we can't evict right now, so my my lease is up for renewal. Can we um, remove the judicial eviction from the lease? And the seller, uh, the, the tenant just consents to me, you know, doing a lockout if the, the property, uh, if they go into default. The answer to that is big fat no at least here in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. You, you can't contract away and remove rights that are provided by statute in contract law. And landlord-tenant law is just a, a prime example of that. The, the contract has to be in line with the law. It can't you know, wave away certain things. And, it's, and that's one of the big reasons why it's important to work with a lawyer, because there are terms in your contracts, your leases, your agreements of sale, your contractor agreements, that can be flexible 
within the law and there's ones that can't. And just reading a sentence, because I have clients that tell me this all the time where they're like, oh, this looked fine to me. And I, you know, take red pen all over that. And they're like, well, that looks better to me. I'm like, of course it does. Because um, if you know which levers to switch on and off, it, it really makes all the difference. And so Keep that in mind, when we're trying not to be a slumlord, when we're dealing with the security deposits, make sure you're following the law. It's easy. It, it, it may be a little bit of an administrative uh, headache, you know, around turnovers and things like that. But tenants are entitled to this information and it's not our money. Courts have been very clear about that, that the security deposit is the the tenants until proven otherwise, usually by, you know, damages at the end of the lease. And so it's not ours. Do not put it in your general business account and just say, oh, I know I've got the extra money there. Uh, At the end of the lease, I'll just pay them out. No, 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 no. Put it in the separate account, interest bearing if your state requires it, give the tenants notice if if, um, they require that as well, because they need that information in the event they had to sue you. And I realized that, well, why would I give them information if they could use that to sue me? Well, they can only sue you if you screw something up. And it's very easy not to screw this stuff up. So just don't screw it up. Okay, next. We, we, we've got the registrations and licenses. We've got the security deposit. Next up is document. Now, I realize that a lot of people don't like to put everything in writing. It takes an extra work. Look, I'm a lawyer. I get that. I get paid to put things in writing. It, it's easy for me to say that. But it's, it's the most important asset protection tool in my perspective is to put documents in place. Even if it's as little as sending an email after a phone call saying, hey, great talking to you. This is, you know, what we talked about uh, and this is what we're going to do about it. Wonderful. And, and the reason I don't like text messages is because text messages are very hard to admit in court. They're very easy to strike down. And whenever I'm communicating with someone in a business standpoint, which is what we're dealing with here in landlord-tenant, remember, we're, we're thinking about it more as a business, um, I want to think about, all right, if I had to show this to, ju- to a judge, how would this look? And that could work in my favor or it can work in the tenant's favor. But you know what? At least it'll be clear. It's not going to be a he said, she said. It's going to be the proof is in the writing. And text messages as writings, yes, they are writings. They are written words. But they are extremely difficult to admit properly as evidence. Judges don't like them. Other attorneys know how to screw them all up and basically have them thrown out. And so at least do an email. They have nice timestamps on them. They're, they're very hard to spoof. Um, and if you need to subpoena, they're easier to subpoena than the um, text message records. Pinky promise. I promise on that one. I've spent years of my life ad- admitting and failing to admit uh, <laughs> uh, text messages to judges as evidence and um, having, my, uh, having them be rejected. Now, um, the the documentation is there is nothing too small to put in writing. I, I I don't want you to think that are like, well, the lease is in writing. Now I have a writing Bonnie. Good for me. No, I want you to put everything in writing. I want there to be no ambiguity as to when you heard something when you found out about something, when you responded to something, when you talked with them about it and made a decision about something. And so it is absolutely, absolutely critical that as much as you can, 
reduce it to some amount of writing. Now, the the fourth and fifth thing I want to talk about are a little bit preachy, so bear with me on here, but it's, I think, critical to the mindset of not being a slumlord. And the first is that even though this is a business, we're dealing with humans. You're a human. I don't care how many asset protection entities you have. You've got series LLCs inside of land trusts, inside of land trusts. Um, you're a human and your tenant is a human. And you provide them with a critical piece of their life, their housing, the roof over their head. And if there's anything we've learned over the last year, it's that even though we are a business, we are a special business. We have to follow special rules. And so when you're communicating with your tenants, when you're problem solving with your tenants especially, come at it from human to human. I see and in my experience, the more open and honest and communicative you are with your tenants from day one, the better the relationship will be. Whether it ends on a good note or a bad note, it will be easier than when you get shut out. And a lot of landlords have been shut out. And I will never place the blame unilaterally on landlords for what's going on right now. We are in an extremely difficult time period of at least here in New Jersey particularly, we have basically been stripped of due process now for over a year. And this is not to go into that whole thing, but taking COVID and that whole situation aside, housing is special. I mean, think about it. I mean, we have a housing shortage in this country. We have a affordable housing, big time crisis in this country. And we provide something that I, I remember, I think it was back in, you know, high school, there's this scale of, you know, what do humans need to feel secure to be able to move through life and succeed? And, you know, you've got food, you've got water, you've got housing. And we're right up there with there, literally with food and water. And so, no, of course, we all know that you can't go to the grocery store and shoplift because that, you know, food is a human right and housing is a human right. And I'm not going down that argument. But when you're talking with people and problem solving with people, keep that in mind. You are in a business that provides a service that is a fundamental necessity to survival for many people for children, for elderly people, for disabled people, whatever, whoever is your tenant, that's their place. And, you know, just thinking about, you know, the sanctity of our our own homes, um, that, you know, housing is special. It is different. And so it can't be as cut and dry as this, you know, they're asking too much. They're, they don't deserve this under the lease, this, that, and the other. I, I, I think at the end of the day, we, we could all use a little extra reminder that we're humans. Landlord, tenant, judge, whatever. Human to human. That's the approach I want you to have when you're talking with tenants, first and foremost. Put, have them put their guard up before you put their guard up. That's what I want to happen. I want them to be so over-loved and <laughs> overwhelmed by your kindness and openness to listen and hear them and make them feel heard and listen to, that when you come to the, a decision is not out of angst or hatred for them personally, because you, you know that that's the first place they're going to go. Oh, they hate me. Oh, they don't want to do this. Oh, come from at place 
And I can just tell you, based off of my experience, that that has been a close to flawless approach. And I, I have, you know, no other explanation. I mean, I have high income tenants. I have very, very low income tenants. I don't have any Section 8, so I can't speak on that. But we've had tenants disappear. We've had all these things. And when you just ask for, and I'll use the tenant who, who disappeared as an example, and this kind of goes back to the document part as well, which is that this, I had a tenant who um, just straight up disappeared. And we knew that, you know, tenants have rights. You can't just re-rent the place. Um, and so we said to them, hey, look, if you left, that's fine. Can you please just respond to this email saying you're not coming back so we can go ahead and re-rent the place? We promise we're not going to sue you or come after anything. We just want to know that we're okay to go ahead and rent the place. Lo and behold, about a day or so later, we got the email back saying yes. And this was probably, I don't know, four or five years ago. I remember this happening. And because of that, we had his writing. Was it perfect? Would I love to have that signed and notarized and all that? Yes. But you know what that's better than? A phone call from him saying, yeah, I'm not coming back. Um, and the, the, the understanding that at the end of the day, we're all just people. I, I, I think the vast, vast majority of people are good people and they're not out there to screw people over. And I don't want you, based off of these communities that think that tenants are these like money squeezing people who are out there just to take advantage of rich landlords. I really, truly do not believe that that is the case. And so I'm here to at least give you that alternative perspective on that. Now, the last thing I, I, we know we talked about, just as a quick recap, licenses and registration, dealing with the security products properly, document everything to protect you and protect your tenants because setting the expectations just save headaches and I'm, I'm like a broken record when it comes to documentation. Fourth, treat people human to human. There's no, we're all people in this. Like I said, I don't care how many asset protection entities you have or don't have. And then the last piece of the pie that I want to talk about, and this one is so basic that I feel like it shouldn't even have to be discussed, but based off of these godforsaken community groups that I've seen, I feel like it apparently doesn't go without saying, and that is habitability. You have to provide habitable housing. And if you can't make your numbers work by, and in order to provide habitable housing, then pass on it, period. Let some you know, house hacker who maybe has different margins or maybe even a retail buyer, go figure that. Maybe allow someone else to come in and buy this property. If you can't provide habitable housing, I can't tell you how many people are out there. Do I have to supply a refrigerator? Do I have to uh, put, you know, a fire escape in there. This is, they're saying it's code, but do I really have to? Is there something else? Do I have to put a vent in the bathroom? Come on. It's unreal. I mean, definitely do a quick look around and maybe talk with an attorney about what does habitability mean in your state because there are different rules on this. For example, in New Jersey, like water is part of habitability. And even if you put the water bill on the tenant and they don't pay it, then you still have to pay it to provide it with them. And you can go through the eviction process and all that, but you can't just not pay the water bill. People are entitled to water, period. And so get to know what habitability means in your city. But for the love of God, when you go to rent a place, 
make sure it is a place that gives someone dignity, pride of home ownership or rentalship or whatever the hell you want to call it. But just because it is a an investment property does not mean you have to put the baseline in. It is okay. It is okay to spend a little bit more to deliver a better product. And I'll just come out and say that. Because in the end, we all know over the long term what plays out better. And my, my uh, someone tell me, and my husband likes to remind me all the time, the cheap paid twice. They're without fail, and I'm sure you could probably look back into periods of your life where you've seen this as well, the cheap pay twice. And so just do it once, do it right. And if there's something that someone needs to live, like usable electric outlets or appliances that would like be expected of a place that is like not one that you own, or... um. Another one I saw recently was bathroom plans. Please, for the love of God, just put it in. Put it in. Your investment strategy, if you've done it correctly and if you follow like, you know, the rules of Burr, the rules of wholesaling, or whatever the your exit strategy is, the a you know, five hundred dollar expense here or there should not make or break you. And if it does, then recheck your numbers. <laughs> recheck your numbers, reevaluate that deal. Because if $500 is going to make or break it, then, ooh, Lord, you're going to have some problems when it comes time to check the roof and when it comes time to replace the HVAC. So that's the kind of stuff you should be saving for in CapEx, not the stuff to just make the place habitable. Don't get the two confused. Okay, so that's Bonnie's really long rant on how not to be a slumlord 101. Again, as a recap, one, get to know your licenses and registration. Two, Know your security deposit rules and laws. Document, document, document. Human to human, habitable, blah, blah, blah. If you appreciated this episode, I would so love a five-star review. It always helps have other people find the podcast when I get great feedback and comments from you guys. And plus, it makes my day. And so thank you so much for tuning in this week and every week to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. It is my fun, special time where Hopefully I can give you a differing perspective on real estate investing than you might be getting elsewhere. And so thank you so much for being a part of this community. I so respect and appreciate all of you. Um, And until next time, I'll talk to you later. If you want to continue the conversation, jump on over to the free Good Bones Real Estate Investing Facebook group. That's it for this episode of the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'll see you here next week, same time, same place. Until then, go out and build the real estate empire of your dreams. Thank you for listening to the Good Bones Real Estate Investing Podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast player to make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes. Now this lawyer's got to drop the fine print real quick. This podcast is educational and not intended to be legal tax or investing advice for you. Please speak with a local professional for specific advice unique to you and your situation. That's it for this episode. Bye for now.